Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Shakespeare once wrote that misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows, and if he were still alive and kicking, I suspect our man Bill would appreciate today's episode, Tap Lines listener. Though beer is the opposite of misery for the American drinking public writ large, the business of brewing and selling beer is riddled with operating requirements, licensing lead times, and regulatory mandates that range from bearable to burdensome. And that's just talking about today, after two decades of craft brewer-led reforms at the local, state, and even federal levels have hacked back some of the thickest stretches of red tape wrapped around the American beer business. Before that, if you were a small-time brewer in a state with Byzantine beer laws on the books, things could be pretty miserable. Which is where those strange bedfellows come in. In 2012, New York State had just 95 breweries, dramatically fewer than its third-in-the-nation population suggested it should. Just six years later, thanks in no small part to the enthusiastic boosterism of now-disgraced former Governor Andrew Cuomo, no beer fanatic himself, but a savvy political operator never missed an opportunity to burnish his populist bona fides, that number had more than doubled, and the Empire State was well on its way to becoming the craft beverage hotbed it is today. Chris O'Leary, the globetrotting founder and editor of the venerable Brew York blog and a longtime observer of the state's political brewing landscape, joins tap lines for the very first time to break down the pivotal 2012 summit in Albany where New York's craft brewers bent the gubernatorial ear to their regulatory woes and forged a fruitful alliance with a notoriously sharp-elbowed striver that would jumpstart the state's then-lagging industry and serve as proof positive to fellow brewers across the country that, miserable though they may be, sometimes politicians were worth getting into bed with. It's Cuomo's 2012 Craft Beverage Summit. It's Brew York's Chris O'Leary. It's the Empire State's big bet on small brewers. And it's all right here, right now, on Line Pair Staff Lines. Let's hear it for New York. That's right, Tap Lines listeners. I'm joined today by the man who has gone every which way in the Empire State's brewing industry, covering it. From Buffalo to Rochester to Albany to New York City to all of the cities on Long Island that I can never really remember, but all kind of sound like uh, uh, moccasin brands, Syosset, Mineola, and things of this nature. I'm talking, of course, about about Brew York editor, publisher, extraordinaire, Chris O'Leary. Chris, welcome to Taplines, man. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Uh, we are here today to talk about a state that you have covered uh, for, for many, many years and, of course, reside in uh, when you're not globetrotting, visiting thousands of breweries around the world. And I, and I lived in, in New York, and that's how we, we know each other because we go way back at this point. Um, but why don't we start with uh, where you are uh, at this very moment? Are you in currently uh, uh, the, the concrete jungle where dreams are made of? I am. I am actually home. I just got back from a European jaunt uh, over Fourth of July week, which was fun. Um, went to England, 
Austria and Slovakia visited another uh, 23 breweries on that uh, in those 10 days. So just uh, just some light work for you, Chris. Yeah, it really yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> Listener, if you're not quite aware of what we're joking about here, uh, you should know that Chris has visited. Uh, well, Chris, what's the total at as we record this? Uh, 3,125. Good God, that is just roughly, uh, uh, if you visited a brewery a day for 10 years, you'd be right around, (laughs) you'd be right around that count. Chris has been all over the country, all over the globe. You visited breweries in every state, right? All 50 states. And in how many continents at this point? Uh, Four continents. And there's none in Antarctica, so you throw that one out. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Two to go there. <laughs> um, and uh, I believe the count is now 24 countries. 24 That's countries. So, so. Uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you, Chris, several times over the years. Uh, if your reporter's looking for this, I would happily offer Chris up to, you know, by all means, steal my source. If you're ever looking for on the ground, literal shoe leather reporting of what tap rooms around the world look like, what's going on in them, what people are interested in, how they're decorated, et cetera, et cetera. I can think of no better resource. Uh, Chris and I have known each other going on a, almost a decade at this point, And we're yeah. glad to finally have you on tap lines, my man. Um, but today we're going to be talking about a very specific state. Uh, uh, we're going to be talking about New York and we're going to be talking about, um, not one brewery, not 3,400 breweries, but really, uh, uh, the industry as a whole and the way in which the state government in New York was able to, uh, catalyze the growth of the craft brewing industry in a really meaningful way. Um, you know, about a decade ago, about 11 years ago from, uh, from when we're talking right now. So Chris, uh, with that said, let's scroll the tap lines time machine back to what was it? 2012, the year is 2012. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're going to zoom in on Albany where there's a very important event in process that is taking place. Um, I know that many listeners know that New York's craft brewing scene these days is very, very, uh, successful and very robust. But Chris, it wasn't always that way, was it? No, it wasn't. In, in 2012, in fact, there were um, around 75, 80 breweries in the state. Um, a lot of them were still holdouts from the 1990s brew pub boom. In fact, in, in New York City, we had four breweries at the time. And the state was falling behind when looking at its peer state's you know, we are the second most populous state and we're seeing California, the most populous at the time. Um, I think that was before Texas slipped into number two. Yeah, yeah. And the beer scene in California was just blowing up. And, World you know, class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, especially in, in places like San Diego and the Bay Area. So there was a lot of talk about how could we replicate that here? Like, why are we lagging behind? What is really holding us back? Um, We had a State Brewers Association. We still do, obviously. But we had a State Brewers Association that was trying to get an ear in Albany to listen to their concerns um, and try to find ways for it to grow because a lot of these breweries were upstate and in economically depressed areas. And they could be opportunities for economic growth. And that was the angle that they were playing with state government there to try to see ways that uh, the brewing industry could grow. 
And also, we're coming off a pretty tumultuous two years for the relationship between brewers and the state liquor authority at the right, time. Right, the SLA. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So um, there had been a bit of a uh, kerfuffle between the the SLA and brewers over uh, brand registration. Uh, So the State Liquor Authority had previously waived uh, brand registration rules, uh, brand registration fees, sorry, for uh, New York State brewers while mm. forcing out-of-state brewers and importers to pay those fees. Uh, as a result, an importer took legal action against the state because of that. Um, and the SLA made the decision, instead of waiving them for everyone, to have everyone file those brand registration Fuck forms yeah. and fees. Instead of less taxes, more taxes for everyone. Exactly. It's, a very, it's a very popular, uh, politically defensible position. People love it when you tell them that they have to pay more taxes. Uh, <laughs> it's a very, very uh, popular thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like, and, and the thing was, you know, at the time there were, most of the breweries that were bringing beer into New York from outside New York were merely just bringing their flagship, their core brands. in. this was not in the era where, you know, breweries would have, you know, tons of rotators that they would bring into another market. Right. But the breweries within the state, especially the much smaller ones that were just starting to experiment were making, you know, upwards of 50 or a hundred different beers a year. Um, so you're looking at brand registration fees that would amount to more than their annual licensing fee <laughs> right? Um, for a brewery that was making less than 500 barrels of beer a year. Sure. So it, it really had soured the relationship between the state and alcohol producers. Um, adding to that was the fact that the SLA was just a massive bureaucracy. It would take, you know, upwards of six months to get approval on a license application, mm-hmm. sometimes even longer than that. And that's just time that a production space is sitting idle, you know, just paying rent and not generating any revenue. So right. those were the two major issues that beer producers had at the time with the SLA. But with the state as a whole, if they could create a relationship there, the hope was that they could create a regulatory environment that would be beneficial to the growth of the industry, not just getting us back to a point where they can function normally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember those were like kind of dark, darker days uh, for New York craft beer as a consumer, certainly been like, I know listener, this can feel a little wonky and in the weeds and we go there sometimes on tap lines, but it is, it's so important, right? Because like, what we're talking about is uh, business economic development and its business growth. But what it really winds up being is whether or not you can have a uh, sustainable, viable environment to, to brew small beer, right. To, to, to make this work at the local level. And like you said, a lot of these constituent, a lot of the brewing constituency was located upstate in economically more depressed areas. If you've ever been, you know, driving around upstate New York, much of it is quite lovely, but some of it or a lot of it is is uh, is is rough because there's just no jobs there anymore. Factories have left over the years as, you know, NAFTA kicked in and even prior to that. So, like, these are opportunities for decent paying, sometimes well paying, depending on the brewery in, in the area, manufacturing jobs. There's a there's a political component to that as well. I mean, 
you know, politicians for whatever their feelings are about alcohol, as long as they're not, you know, uh, uh, barnstorming uh, temperance advocates, they will likely go for jobs over any concerns they have about, you know, about a vice like alcohol. So jobs are, are on the mind of New York State's politicians at this time. I also, I love the idea that like, looking to California is like, fuck, like California has all these incredible breweries, uh, obviously a hotbed of craft brewing. We're recording this in mid July when, uh, the news about anchor brewing company being closed by support USA. (laughs) Chris has got the, the anchor glassware drinking the anchor steam, uh, that he opened with the anchor bottle opener, uh, in (laughs) honor. So, um, but, but Anchor, of course, was a, a major uh, and still is until it, it, such time as it's closed. We'll, we'll say it's still on life support for the time being as we record this. You know, uh, incredibly influential, drives the Northern California beer scene, which itself drives the entire California beer scene. California is this major player. And if you ever want to get a New Yorker to do something, take action on something, you just have to tell them that California is doing better at it. And (laughs) (laughs) so that's the scene that we set here. What were you drinking? What were people drinking from New York at that time? 2012 here. What were what were people excited about? I'm trying to think back. Uh, So you had Brooklyn, um, obviously. Yeah. Yep. Uh, You had Six Point. Um, and Six right. Point at the time was still brewing all of their beer in. Actually, I think they had just started to do some contract brewing to package their beer in mm. cans. With who? FX Matt? Uh, no, they were. I think they were at they were at the Lion Brewery in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, okay. before they had moved out to Memphis. That part of their operation. Mm. Gosh, I mean, you had Chelsea Brewing in the city. I mean, I'm just talking in the city, but um, you know, there was a lot of Saranac out there made by FX Matt. That's right. Um, that was kind of one of my gateway beers. Um, you had Genesee. Um, as far as the craft players, Southern Tier, um, they were they were pretty big at the time. Um, in Syracuse and Rochester, you had uh, Empire. In fact, uh, the founder of Empire, um, Dave Kataleski, was the head of the New York president of the New York State Brewers Association at the time that this is all going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there were there were a lot of regional brands that still dominated, and you had a I handful drink, of yeah. old school. Keegan's mother's mother's oh, did they have Keegan's. mother's milk? Remember that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. R.I.P. Tommy Keegan. He was yeah. he was a legend. Uh, Captain Lawrence was uh, fairly new at That's that right. time. Blue Point, obviously. Yeah, 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 yeah. How can we forget? I mean, Blue Point was that was pre um, AB InBev, right? Because they did tw- yes. they got acquired in twenty fourteen. Blue Point Correct. did, I think. Yeah, if I remember. Yep. Um, okay, so that kind of sets the scene. And listeners, hopefully, you're familiar, you know, with some of those brands, and that kind of gives you a sense of what you know, sort of temporal vibe we're looking for in terms of the beers that were uh, available to your average uh, New York state drinker who might pop into his or her local bodega or uh, supermarket and try to pick up a six pack. So Chris, at this time in, in, uh, in 2012, you know, we're looking, New York state politicians are looking around the country. They're seeing New York falling behind. They're seeing this opportunity you know, for, for, to bring jobs to the state, which by the way, coming out of the recession, you know, the mortgage crisis and what, and, uh, when I, in 2007, 2008, I think by 2012, I looked this up before we started this episode, the unemployment rate in New York was still very high. It was like 8.9% at this time. So it by no means has the state recovered from, uh, from the mortgage crisis, the subprime mortgage lending crisis, um, 
obviously that recovery was unequal while economic powerhouses like New York City bounced back relatively quickly. These more economically depressed regions in upstate uh, are struggling harder with it. And this is another reason that, man, we got to get this craft beverage industry uh, uh, you know, firing on all cylinders or at least on more cylinders. So that right. is where we're at in 2012. And enter the scene, uh, uh, big, big friend of the pod, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> I'm kidding, uh. listener. I'm please don't please don't uh, uh, scroll away on Spotify or Apple Music. I swear I'm kidding. Uh, Andrew Cuomo is not not a friend of the Taplines podcast. That was a joke. Chris like hit his head in or hung his head in shame at my uh, feeble attempt at humor. But at the time, at the time, uh, you know, Andrew Cuomo is governor of New York. Everyone is talking about this guy heading for the for the White House, making a presidential run. He is in what would later, in hindsight, be you know close to his political prime. Let's say. Um, and he, he takes up the cause of, of craft beverage producers in New York. And mm-hmm. that ultimately takes the shape of what becomes called the wine, beer and spirits summit, uh, in 2012. And Chris, I know you may not know exactly why he took up the cause, but do you have any sense for like how this thing came together? Uh, I mean, I know that the the State Brewers Association had been a part of conversations across the wine, beer, and spirits industries to try to get something moving because it was a growing segment of the economy at a time when, you know, other segments were struggling. Yep. Um, So they saw it as an opportunity um, to, you know, get the ear of, of the governor and his office and other leaders in Albany around how there this could be an economic growth opportunity. And also, on the side, see some reforms happen from a regulatory perspective. Right. Um, one, one thing that's really interesting, and, and um, I want to point out, yes, it was wine, beer, and spirits, and obviously we're talking mostly about beer, but one of the first reforms that the Brewers Association really wanted to push was to put beer on an equal footing with wine. Because wine had seen massive growth in production in New York back in the 70s. Uh, You know, you saw the Finger Lakes region become a hotbed uh, for wine. And as a result, the farm winery license was created back then. Um, And 1976. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you would think that, you know, the next natural step would be a farm brewery license. You know, the model's already there. It yeah, it clearly works, and it could be another opportunity for uh, manufacturing and agriculture to both see growth. So yep. I, I think that was a good story, and that probably caught the ear of some of, of the state's leaders. And honestly, I, I think the way they would sell it in, it's an easy win. You know, yep. beer is not beer is totally. not a controversial subject. It's 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 bipartisan. It, you know, most of the reforms that happened were you know overwhelmingly approved um, in the legislature. So these are easy wins um, for, you know, so why wouldn't a governor take an opportunity to get an easy win? Any politician. Yeah, especially not one as image conscious and savvy for all his many, many 
awful characteristics and awful behavior that's been well documented. Cuomo was nothing if not savvy. I mean, he was, you know, in many ways a power broker in New York, you know, for for two decades before he he got the governor's mansion. So it's an obvious opportunity to burnish your political bona fides and maybe add that to the old resume for, again, at that time, there was there was constant, near constant chatter about the imminent or the the uh, inevitable Cuomo uh, uh, presidential run, run to the White House. Obviously, things didn't work out that way. And that's for the best, I would say, uh, based on what we now know. But uh, you can obviously see that there's a political element to it, too, where it's an attractive, as you said, it's an easy win, right? Um mm-hmm. The farm, the farm winery license thing. So that's been on the books in New York at this point since 1976. So you're going on four decades with with that on the books. And what I think is interesting about that is like, and and something that I wanted to emphasize in this episode is, there's this book uh, called How to Kill a City um, by P. Moskowitz. Um, that's about gentrification, and I, it's not too relevant to what we're talking about today. But the the aspect that is the theme that is that the author uh, hammers home is that these things gentrification doesn't just happen, right? It looks like it happens. Craft breweries that show up in your neighborhood, or third wave coffee places that show up in your neighborhood, or yoga studios that show up in your neighborhood, they look to be advancing gentrification. But by the time those businesses actually show up. The die has already been cast by policymaking, by zoning, by by all of the sort of machinations of municipal and, and local and state government to create the economic viability or the economic conditions um, for development to take place in specific ways. And the the parallel I sort of see there, or I want to draw there, is that New York State's wineries didn't just happen, right? Like we think about New York as a major wine producing region now, and certainly the terroir of the, of the soil and the, and the temperate climate and uh, in, you know, out in the North Fork, the, the sea breeze coming in off the Atlantic and off the, the Long Island Sound. um, Those are all beneficial aspects of the, the, the viticulture in New York, but what created or what sort of helped the industry explode into the into what it is now was a set of policy decisions to allow wineries to access licenses and and the proper you know sort of business documents to be able to to operate right and like so we know that backdrop right like these are policy making decisions like these are not just sort of organic things that kind of happen uh uh you know it's not open fermentation right like it's these things aren't just sporadic <laughs> but right. but and and so brewers are look, new york brewers are looking at that and it's always easier to get a law on the books if there's already one that's similar and you can say hey look at this one like we could just do this but you know, for our thing. And, uh, it's less scary. Um, frankly, like a lot of lawmakers are lazy and want easy wins, not hard wins where they have to hammer out, you know, the language of a bill, God forbid from, from a blank piece of paper. Can you imagine Chris? Um, so the, so as you say, the, the farm winery act, uh, of 1976 provides sort of this template or this, this foothold, maybe, um, this talking point that the, the brewer's guild can get the ear of Cuomo's office or someone in Cuomo's office, or maybe Cuomo himself, although he, I don't think he like really ever made a big scene about being a big beer fan. Right. He, he like kind of said he was to some extent, but like he wasn't like a big beer guy. No, no. Although, I mean, yeah, no, he, he was not, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think the, the interactions that I had with him at beer events, if there was anything that was in particular that, 
struck me as him being knowledgeable about beer? No, 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 not at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's never been reported. Right. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, but yeah, okay. So, so in 2012, they decide to have this summit. I know mm-hmm. you weren't able to attend the summit in person yourself, but we won't dock you any points for that because you travel so much that I think, uh, you know, we'll give you a mulligan on that one. But you did. <laughs> I think you told me you watched it on uh, you streamed it live. I streamed on- it. And you were like, you were like, they had that technology in 2012. In 2012. I'm like, yeah, believe it or not, they did. You know, I, I even went back to look <laughs> at my article about it to make sure I was not imagining that. And I had a screen cap. <laughs> in the article so what was, like, the, what oh was the resolution like 480p oh, oh, yeah. terrible it's terrible it, you can barely make out that it's actually andrew cuomo that's sitting at the table there but yeah. um yeah so uh in so you live stream the summit of, right yeah. yep yep and that was that was in october of 2012 and um basically it started as a listening session i, I the, the summit they did uh another summit two years later that was similarly structured where Um, They had members of the industry sitting on the sides and then you had state government officials at the front of the room Mm -hmm. and they were just going one by one. Here's, here's what we need to succeed. Here's what's not working for us. And it really was a listening session. It was an honest listening session. Um, I remember, I I can't remember which member of the beer industry who was speaking. There were, there were, I think four guys, there was, there was Dave Kataleski and then there was um, someone from FX, Matt, Genesee and, and CH Evans in Albany. Um, And uh, one of them pointed out one of the more ridiculous uh, regulations in New York state at the time for brewers was if you attended a beer festival, a member of the brewing staff could not pour beer. Because it had to be like a, a, a specially licensed caterer type of thing. Right. Well, it just, it just couldn't be any, because that would, that would, that would circumvent the three tier system. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. That fucking <laughs> rocks. That's, like that's how absurd yeah. some of but the regulations were. In New York we laugh time. now, but you know, you're right. I mean, 11 yeah. years ago, like this is a totally different landscape and that, you know, that stuff wasn't even as restrictive as, uh, you know, I used to live in South Carolina and, uh, the, they didn't, they didn't up the, uh, the ABV until maybe 2014. And I mean, Oklahoma, I think still has a, uh, whatever the point is, yeah, yeah. yeah, In 2012, that's like, even though we cackle about it now or I do, uh, it's, uh, this is very much like that's the milieu, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I recall governor Cuomo at the time upon hearing that immediately reacting, like what you can't pour your own beer. Right. That doesn't make any sense. You know, <laughs> proving that Cuomo like was at least at one point, like an empathetic human with like a capacity to relate right. to others. <laughs> Even he, upon hearing about the three tier system was like, that's crazy. I don't think that's right. I'm going to look into this. <laughs> and three years, three years later, we found more ways to circumvent the three tier system. But, right. um, but yeah, so so that was that was one that stood out. It was also kind of a um, that morning session ended with some like big economic development announcements. So like government grants and things that were going to the industries that were at the table. Mm-hmm. So that was actually the where they announced the Taste New York campaign, which still exists to 
this day. Yeah. Um, just a, you know, statewide promotion of craft beverages across the board. Um, that was when they announced that the uh, New York State Fair would um, serve craft beer for the first time from New York State breweries, which seems like a very logical thing that should have been done a while ago, considering that it's just incredibly quaint. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and it was also where they where they announced um, just acknowledge that there needs to be an industry resource for the state from at the State Liquor Authority to try to help breweries move faster um, through the application process um, to to start, you know, to, to open. And then uh, in the afternoon session, after they had regrouped, uh, they announced some of the, basically some of the, basically what the wish list would be for uh, getting regulatory changes pushed through the the legislature. Um, So that was where the combined license came from. So a brewery and a winery and a distillery could all operate under one roof. Um, That was where they, when they announced that they were getting rid of the uh, pour your own beer um, at the restriction. Yeah. yeah. Right. You also had to get a annual tasting permit at the time, which was, a thousand dollars a year just to be able to attend events and pour beer at those events. Um, so that was reformed as well. Oh, they also, that's right. I, I, I've completely forgot this. I just, it just came to me. So you had to register with both the, you had to file a license with both the state liquor authority and the department of agriculture at the time. Um, and that would go away too. So those were little, little victories. Um, but they led the state's beer industry down a path that they had clearly opened up a line of communication and, the just the conversations that happened at that first summit around opportunities around beer agriculture and things like that mm. would come to the forefront um, two years later um, at the next summit when they um, ultimately got the farm brewery law passed. Um, and that was when they looked back at 2012 and said, hey, here are the victories that we've already had so far. They saw jobs in the beer sector triple. Whoa. Yeah. Now, the question is, would that have happened naturally? It might have. I mean, there were obviously some regulatory things that were holding back the industry, but the trajectory across the country was pretty aggressive growth in craft beer at that time. So maybe they would have doubled instead of tripling. Yeah. Right. It's still a small victory. Um well, it's a big victory, really. But is it a victory for what was discussed in 2012? Yeah, a little bit. So the big thing at that time was the state liquor authority's response time on applications dropped by like something like 60%. So that was clearly a sign that they had invested in a regulatory structure that would actually help support growth of the industry mm-hmm. because that dropped at a time when even more applications were coming in because this because there were so many more breweries opening right. in the state. And to your point, like to some extent, that is just the growth of the industry, which was at that point hitting its its sort of heyday across the country. So there are more people talking about craft beer that's obviously generating more sort of you know business plans and people are more interested in investing in the space, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some sort of uh you know latent momentum there, but for the state to be able to to meet the moment and you know 
reduce its processing time again wonky but really fucking important if you're trying to run a business uh is a big deal right they're facing more they're doing it faster they've obviously prioritized this in a way that um the brewers had been you know begging for for a while and things are kind of kind of a well-oiled or closer to a well-oiled machine right right and and yeah, the the year prior to the second summit was when the farm brewery license uh, was instituted. So the the timeline there was summit where we're just trying to get some basic regulatory restrictions off the books. Next year, farm brewery license. Year after that is what they call the Craft New York Act, which um, really really started to open the floodgates. Um, so it raised production caps so um, more of the larger breweries could continue to operate under the same license rather than having to hold a second far more expensive license. There's right. the um, microbrewery license and then there's the, the gosh, class D license, I think it is. It's the largest brewery license. It was, it was like there were, I think, three breweries in the state that held this license. But as craft breweries started to grow, especially the larger ones, they were foreseeing an issue with having to pay for this much more expensive license, which would have had implications for those breweries and may have stunted their growth. In fact, they, they may have been like, you know what, maybe it's not worth it for us to, you know, double our capacity if it's going to mean that we're going to have to pay, you know, higher fees to the state. Right. Um, so that actually allowed the direct shipment of beer, which was a godsend in 2020 mm-hmm. um, during COVID, where yep. New York State breweries were able to ship across the state. You know, I got I got beer from breweries in Buffalo and the Finger Lakes and Albany while I was you know cooped up here in in, in this apartment. So um, that was that was a big win. And then uh, there were separate licenses required for both. Uh, there was a there's a microbrewery license and a brewery retail license. So just selling beer required a different at your brewery required a different license than having a manufacturing facility and tap room. So um, that was eventually eliminated too. So um, we saw some some big wins that year, and that was also when they started to put their money where their mouth is around farm breweries. And promoting agriculture because you had this farm brewery license, yep. which had some not aggressive requirements at the time, but you know it required like twenty five percent of all the raw materials in your beer to be sourced from within New York State. And at the time that that bill was passed, there was not a malt house in New York, so you could you could buy New York grown malt, <laughs> but. It was malted in Massachusetts. Right, right. And to be malted out of state and then trucked back in. Obviously yeah. not very attractive for the margin. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Wait, let's uh, let's pause there for a second. What were mm-hmm. – because I think it's important to, you know, to unpack a little bit the machinery of the Farm Bill and sort of the way it attempts to and, – and ultimately does. It is successful. That's the spoiler alert at the end. It is a, a <laughs> tremendous success, I think, by, by most measures. But the way, but the way this machine is is structured or built out to try to create virtuous cycles uh, in in a, a symbiotic relationship between New York agriculture and New York breweries, what are what's the mechanism there, Chris? The issue, <laughs> the issue really was that it it was designed as a way to spur growth in agriculture. That the bill, you know, said that until a certain point, and this was actually one of my issues with the original law that was passed that still holds true now is that it wasn't that, okay, so say you're 
a brewery and you get a farm brewery license, whether you started two years before the deadline or four years before the deadline, when that deadline came, you had to step up the amount of raw materials you were sourcing from New York State from 20% to 50%. Right. Um, what it did is said, you know, when you open, um, when, when this bill passed, it'll be 20%. But what I thought would be more ideal is, okay, when you get that farm brewery license for the first time. Right, it should be rolling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, it should be yeah. on a rolling basis. Um, and that actually put us in a bit of a pickle where, you know, there just simply wasn't enough. There were enough raw materials to satisfy the bare requirements, but there was not enough for, say, more than a handful of breweries to source a hundred percent of their ingredients from New right. York state if they wanted right. to. That, because there aren't enough hop farms because there, there aren't enough malt. Uh, uh, there is not enough barley, you know, that that's of malting quality. There aren't, to your point, there's not a malt house in New York. So the the, time, yeah. Yeah, at yeah. the time, the, so the, the economics of it aren't attractive. So the idea of, of this farm brewery license, which becomes extremely attractive for, you know, potential brewery owners who are looking to start a brewery for all the reasons you mentioned about the, the expedited, uh, uh, you know, opportunity to, to, to get a license without some of the bureaucracy. It's much more streamlined. It's a way to, to launch this business, um, uh, much more quickly and, and, and effectively with lower overhead in terms of time and in terms of, you know, navigating, you know, the way Albany works and the way the local municipalities work. So there's, there's a lot of brewery owners that want this license and that go get this license. But again, when you talk about raw materials, you're literally talking about, well, I need to have 20% of my hops coming from, you know, uh, from New York farms. I need to have 20% of my other ingredients coming from New York farms. I think that was the requirement until 2018. Um, and then it steps up to 50%. And then it steps up, I think it's supposed to step up again to what, 90% in 2024? It, it was supposed to. That's been pushed to 2028, which yeah. was entirely my point. <laughs> when, when that <laughs> bill was passed, I was like, we're going to hit a time where there's no way that we could hit 90%. Like right. that's, that's completely wishful thinking. And the, the more frustrating thing, that you know to me was they also weren't putting money into uh hop research at the time agricultural research around creating hop varieties that'll grow well in new york right state. resilient in new york state yeah 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 so you know they they have since started that process but that process should have started 10 years ago when the farm brewery law was passed sure, sure rather than rather than you know four or five years ago in order to satisfy that requirement. So, you know, the writing was on the wall that that, that deadline was going to have to be pushed. They but. pushed a bottle. They, they created a bottleneck for themselves, you know, five mm -hmm. years down, 10 years down the road. Uh, and they never really course corrected right, to, right, to right. accommodate it. Yeah. But, you know, in spite of all that, the, despite the faults of the, of the, the bill itself, it did what it was intended to do. It spurred growth in the beer industry. It spurred growth in beer agriculture. New York is typically either uh, fourth or fifth in hop growth in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the drop between Idaho and New York is like, the, the gap is massive. Right, I mean, we're right. talking. Yeah. Like, yeah. We're like, it's uh, uh what it's like, what old, I forget what division two football is called now, but we're, it's, you're the best. You're the university of Richmond in division more, two football. It's, yeah. more like, it's more like the drop from D one to D three. <laughs> actually maybe more the drop from like D D one to like junior college. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's a massive drop, but, but I mean, technically fifth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, 
so it, it did work to promote beer agriculture in the state. And historically, we had been a beer agriculture state. A large percentage of all the hops grown in the U.S. prior to Prohibition were grown in New York State. Um, so we did have the climate for it, but the climate was more ideal, obviously, in the Pacific Northwest. And, and but we can do it. <laughs> like we can we can grow these. Right. Um, so. Yeah, we did see big growth in hop growing. We saw malt houses open. We saw farmers specialize in in, in you know beer grains, even specialty grains, um, so that brewers could who wanted to source all of their grain from New York State could, um, regardless of what types they wanted to use. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it did what it was intended to do, and it really did help, especially upstate. It really helped to spur growth in the beer industry um, because it gave brewers that have very low overhead the opportunity to reduce that even more. You know, if you're just a small brewer who wants to run on a three barrel system in a garage and, you know, Olean, you can do that. Yeah, the, <laughs> the suburbs of Poughkeepsie or whatever. Yeah. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. sure. So, so yeah, I, I think that that was really the catalyst for some of the growth we saw between, you know, 2014 and 2018, which, I mean, New York state was just flying <laughs> in terms of, uh, in terms of their rank on the list of, of most breweries in the country, which were also growing quite rapidly at that time, because this is the heyday. So it's not like you're flying past, you know, kids on a tricycle, you know, driving a car, like you're, you're, you know, moving with the pack and moving past a pack that's already going quite uh, high velocity at that time. Yeah. I mean, if you had told me in 2014 that within five years, New York state would have more breweries in Colorado, I would have just been like, no way. There's yeah, right. no way that's happening. Colorado is like the beer mecca. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and sure enough, that happened. I mean, we, we still have about 200 more than, than they do. Yeah. Because there's so many fucking people in New York is the reality is like, there's this basically the sleeping giant of a, uh, of a state, you know, economy that was just like waiting to be fired up on, on craft beer and needed the right and needed the right push. Yeah. Yeah. So again, putting that into perspective, as you mentioned, think about the number of breweries nationally, you know, went from like 1000 to 8,000 over that period mm -hmm. or 1,000 to 7,000, I think over that five year period. But New York went from about, you know, I remember we kind of celebrated when we hit a hundred in 2013, but, um, you know, and they're over 500 now, yeah, yeah. um, in spite of some of the, the closings we've seen in the last, you sure. know, the last two years and, and, you know, for every closing, there seems to be an opening to, uh, to, to offset that. So almost, almost one-to-one -one still, uh, in 2022, I, I, mm -hmm. I don't know if you dialed in, but Bart Watson, who's the chief economist of the Brewers Association, uh, who's been a tremendous source for me over the years, you actually uh, were the one who first put me in touch with Bart or told me to go look him up. But anyway, Bart uh, does the you know state of the industry thing every year, and, and I dialed in, and yeah, the, the openings and closures are one-to-one. -one. He jokes because he's been sort of calling that canary in the coal mine for, for a couple of years now, and it just it refuses to die. Like, we have not seen that flip um, well, into I, negative I will growth. Say, yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll say that, that you got to consider one of the things is that it's still some people's dream to open a brewery, right? 
And when they can do it on the cheap because they've already got a turnkey operation that they can pick up. Like totally. it's not just it's not just necessarily one to one in the sense that you know a brewery can open in one place and close in another. Right. It may be the same location. Same, same location. Right. Yeah. It's the hermit yeah. crab yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. Like it's yeah. uh <laughs> it's similar to restaurants. Like if the if the stainless steel hood and the in the range is already there and all the fucking, you know, tables and silverware is available for sale from the same broker who's happy to sign over the the lease, like, well, guess what, man? Like, that's going to be a restaurant forever. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, yeah. It may not yep. be the same restaurant, but it's going to be, the, it's going to be all restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> even, even in cursed spaces. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so, uh, the farm brewery license, I want to throw some numbers at you here. I'm going to, I'm going to just quote quickly from, uh, from a, like a five-year retrospective, uh, that Chris Crowell did over at, uh, uh, craftbrewingbusiness.com. Um, but mm-hmm. here's, here's the numbers, you know, so a quote, the number of breweries has skyrocketed in New York since governor Andrew Cuomo hosted the state's first wine, beer and spirits summit in 2012 with 243 new breweries obtaining licenses and beer being brewed in 57 of the state's 62 counties. Additionally, 202 new farm brewery licenses have been issued since the governor's farm brewery law went into effect mirroring the highly successful 1960 winery uh, farm winery act, uh, blah, 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 close quote. So we're talking about, you know, that's in 2018. So 243 mm-hmm. uh, new uh, brewery licenses, 202 new farm brewery licenses. Um, we're talking about just an enormous amount of growth as you've described here. And I think that's a good way to, to segue into, you know, it's sort of what I wanted to talk to you about, because as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you are so well-traveled, you are so well-plugged into not only how uh, brewing, you know, is going in the state of New York, but all across the country. This was, this wound up being a, a fairly influential uh, model, which other states, if I understand correctly, other states, you know, sort of looked to, to emulate in some capacity or another. I'm curious whether any state in particular jump out to you as, you know, ones that you could see echoes of, you know, New York state's, uh, moves, or if it was obvious that they were, they were looking at, you know, what New York state was doing. So I don't think there are any that have really latched onto the, the beer agriculture model. Yep. Um, but definitely in the model of engaging state government in reform, right. Um, regulatory reform to try to get uh, more breweries to open or to allow breweries to open more quickly um, on the basis of promoting economic growth has really become a model. And, and I mean, you actually brought it up earlier. One state that comes to mind is Oklahoma. Um, right. Oklahoma had massive issues when it came to regulatory restrictions that just held back that entire industry for so long. And I remember being in Oklahoma city in 2015, um, when they were on the cusp of some of the reforms that that finally happened with you know their states, you know Brewers Association and you know the the handful of breweries that were there at the time, mm-hmm. I asked, okay, there's five breweries in Oklahoma City right now. How many do you think are just waiting in the wings just here? And they were like, oh, fifteen easily. Wow, yeah, you know, three like, times. You're talking, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, and sure enough, when I went back to Oklahoma City for the first time last year, since then. They were like 20 plus breweries in Oklahoma wow. City. So, and that was part of the argument for why we need to reform the regulatory system in the state is because it will help promote economic growth. It will create manufacturing jobs. That's, that's 
always something that just like flashes, you know, dollar yeah, signs in the red, eyes of red uh, meat for a yeah, red yeah, meat yeah. for a state politician is we're bringing exactly. manufacturing jobs back to my district. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yep, exactly. So, and, and you know that that is it's a model that I think could work in. I mean, there's still a handful of states that have laws that are holding them back, um, like the one immediately across the Hudson River from from me right now. Shout out to another big friend of the pod, uh, <laughs> Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey, of course. <laughs> Again, I am kidding. Uh, as we record this, our man, our man Murphy down in Trenton, New Jersey, is uh, is playing spoiler on a unanimously passed 77 to 0 to 0, meaning no one even abstained uh, bill to reform New Jersey's you know, taproom laws that have been on the books for a while around tap rooms and, and brewery shit that uh, is arcane and really only benefits the state's powerful restaurant and bar lobby. Uh, the tri-state area is full of bullshit when it comes to uh, booze bureaucracy, Chris. You make a very good point. Yeah. Um, but to your... <laughs> we're, but you we're, know, not, we're not special. I mean, like... New Jersey has the same problem that Alaska and Montana do where too much uh, land. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think that's New Jersey's problem, but <laughs> oh, you know, uh, I mean, the pine barrens are, are kind of empty, but um, you know, they, they all allow liquor license holders uh, to sell uh, their license at fair market, for fair market value to another buyer. And, you know, that means that if you hold a liquor license, you're sitting on a value of sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you see someone get a brewery license down the street for two or $3,000. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and what I say to that in New Jersey is, you know, if, if you want to go through the process of opening a brewery, and the construction that goes along with that and hiring a brewer and packaging, finding a distributor, by all means do that. Right. <laughs> if it seems right. so easy to you, right. you know? just do uh, the thing then you yeah, should just yeah. sell your bar license and buy a cheaper brewery license. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. If, the, if that was so easy, then, you know, People would be doing that, but no one in their right mind would in New Jersey. So right. it's 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 silly. I mean, that's why Montana and Alaska have some more draconian restrictions on brewery tap rooms as well um, for the same reason. It's funny to see that common thread, um, but that is where, look, going back to just how state government works, right? There, there's, there was no beer lobby before... We got the the ear of of Andrew Cuomo here in 2012. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was a Brewers Association, and but, there was you know, a beer dis- there was there was a beer distributors lobby. <laughs> oh sure, oh for sure, right. But there wasn't really a beer manufacturers lobby. I right. mean, there were there were a few large breweries that obviously you know had friends in in state government. Sure, but you know the the big lobbies at the time were the restaurant and bar lobby and the and the distributors lobby. So mm. and they're, they're powerful. You know, there's a heck of a lot more bars and restaurants than there are breweries in every single state. So they're going to wield their power when they feel threatened. Um, And I think what happened in New York that is kind of a model is that, you know, we engaged with other sectors that could see growth as a result of growth in beer, tourism, Agriculture, yeah, you know, it, 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 the, these are these are areas that could stand to benefit from a reform, and it 
probably, we, you know, we'd say, a, you know, a rising tide raises all boats, but Hey, you know what? If, uh, if more people are coming to visit breweries, they're also going to visit bars and restaurants too. Uh, they're not just going to go to breweries. Right. There's a I mean, halo yeah. effect from, uh, from gastro tourism. If you want to lump it under that, uh, that big umbrella. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's how you kind of neutralize the, the threat that is seen by people who have, you know, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a restaurant and see a tap room down the street as a threat. It's funny. I think about like the, the towns I've been to in New Jersey where I've gone to tap rooms and then because I couldn't eat there, I, I went to a restaurant. But if I could eat there, I probably would have stayed longer in that town and maybe stayed for two meals. Sure, sure. So there's a lot of people who feel threatened there. And I, I think the way we went about it in New York was it really was an opportunity that I don't think is one that many other states have unless they have a true opportunity to grow both hops and malt. Um, you know, you're not going to get a farm brewery law passed in Florida. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <not> gonna... <laughs> um, but there's definitely something to be learned from, you know, engaging with the right people and finding the right message. And I think that's what made that summit so successful. And I think that's what has made New York's you know, beer industry so successful over the, the 11 years since. And it's a success that I think, you know, not that this uh, this podcast carries any water for Andrew Cuomo uh, or any politician for that matter. Tapline pulls no punches, but it does speak to the fact that like as fucking odious as it is and as he is or turned out to be like, there's just like a degree of horse trading that has to happen. Like you find allies where you can he was interested in the jobs aspect of it at that time. Uh, clearly, like not that interested in like the actual, you know, businesses as we discussed before. Um, it wasn't clear that he really was a big drinker at all. And actually, there's a quote from the New York Times. I'm going to quote: Someone asked him uh, if he's more of a beer guy or a wine guy, and he responds, "Quote uh, that he's a." beer and wine and hard cider in distilled products guy, which like very normal way to say that you fucking weirdo, <laughs> but like, but you know what? He showed up and he, and he, uh, and he, and he moved some stuff through. So, uh, you know what? How about that? The world's not always black and white and, no, uh, no. people contain multitudes. I, exactly. this, this is a lesson that I refuse to learn and listeners, I urge you not to learn it either, but Chris, thank you so much for coming and, uh, and for bringing us back to, to 2012 and and that that you know that beer summit that sort of changed the direction for New York's uh, craft brewing industry. Chris, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming by. You're welcome back on Tap Lines anytime, and stay safe out there as you fly from uh, one corner of the globe to the other. I will. Thanks for having me. Take care, man. Tap Lines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout-out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you, listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. 
I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.